even with the latest software, it'll just list everyone's name. You know, you can go to your Trello cards, you can go to your work front, you can go to whatever project management software you use, and you'll see a person and the list of projects they have, but that doesn't really tell you how busy or overwhelmed or underwhelmed they are. So what I came up with is what I call the Whelm Scale. And the Whelm Scale, it's really trying to figure out all of those elements that go into play into making a person feel overwhelmed or underwhelmed. If you remember anything from this episode, it's the Whelm Scale. Are you underwhelmed, overwhelmed, and how do you make sure your team is perfectly whelmed? Welcome to Real Creative Leadership, a place where creative leaders can find insights and practical guidance on the day-to-day job of being a creative leader. We focus on real issues, topics, and insights of creativity in the business world. Join me as we explore the best strategies for developing your team, getting others to embrace your vision, and generating amazing experiences. This webinar series is produced by The Stoke Group. I'm your host, Adam Morgan, Adobe Executive Creative Director and author of Sorry Spock Emotions Drive Business. And this is Real Creative Leadership. Hello and welcome back to Real Creative Leadership. I'm your host, Adam Morgan, Executive Creative Director at Adobe. This is brought to you by The Stoke Group, a full-service and digital marketing agency in Silicon Slopes. Welcome back. And thanks for listening. Whether you're joining this live for the webinar or binge-watching later on the podcast, I appreciate you joining and and listening. Uh, Just a quick reminder of what Real Creative Leadership is all about. So in my experience, there are a million ways that you can learn how to write better or design better on the web or at events, but there's very little in this world in terms of creative leadership. Um, And leadership is different for uh, creative people, uh, running a creative department, running a creative uh, team, very different than just traditional leadership. And uh, so the whole point of this series is to bring best practices, tips, insights, uh, like a guidebook of all the things that you've never had uh, around creative leadership. And my goal is to make sure that we, we give it in a way that it's easy to understand, um, easy for you to put into practice, and uh, Hopefully, you know, the goal is that at the end of the day, all of us together can raise the level of creative leadership in this world and make a bigger impact on business. So that's what our real creative leadership is all about. So thanks for listening. And today we are on how to scale your creative team. So the reason why there were two parts is there was just too much to talk about. You know, there's two different parts. I kind of broke it down into last time we talked about how to scale your team externally with agencies and freelancers and all of that. And today we're going to talk about how do you scale yourself and and how do you manage and scale your internal team. So first I want to talk about yourself. So this is really important as a a creative leader and even I would say just in general, I've seen a a lot during this COVID crisis of people talking about kind of self-care. And I think a lot of that stuff is really, really important Um, because if you don't kind of figure out your limitations, then you're going to burn out. And burnout is terrible in our industry. It happens a lot. I've seen many creative leaders burn out and then just disappear from the scene or try a new industry or whatever it may be. And and it's just sad because we're losing a lot of good talent. So let's first talk a little bit about, about ourselves. So, you know, because in our industry, it's interesting. I, I kind of see this, this pendulum, right? On one end, it's this almost martyr badge of honor that we want to do everything. We want to go out and say, no, I'm the hardest working person on the team. I'm the hardest working person at the company. I can do everything. I don't need help. I can just do it all myself. 
And that's certainly uh, a path to burnout, certainly. On the other end, you know, we have things like, if you've ever read the book Essentialism, you know, there's, a, there's another creative director at Adobe, my friend Josh, and we argue about the differences between being an essentialist versus trying to do everything. And he's certainly an essentialist and maybe I try and do everything. We're always battling it out. But on that other end of essentialism, there's a lot of um, advice out there of saying, you just need to say no to more projects. You need to just learn to push back. You need to just learn to, you know, kind of hold up the hand and say, stop, right? And in my opinion, I don't think that, you know, going all the way to just saying no all the time and, and, and essentialism in theory for me is nice, but it's not practical. Like I just find that, the people who are true essentialists are just, you know, they leave a wake of, of stuff behind them where everyone else is picking up the pieces because they're just ignoring it all. But trying to do everything and be everything to everyone is also, you know, a recipe for failure because you're just going to be, you know, in meetings all day long and all night long and working yourself to the bone. So to me, I think it's all about finding that perfect middle ground, right? So first things first, before you scale your team, before you scale anything, like start with yourself. Find out where your limitations are. Find out how you need to do enough or when you don't need to do too much, right? And I know that's really hard to say just in, in theory, but let me give you some practical advice from me personally. So for me, it was it's a story of where I found my, like the extreme of the limit. And this happened, you know, in, funny as it is, like in, in a recession, not this one, but the one back in 2008. And back then I was working in agency, uh, as an executive creative director of an agency in Utah. And during that recession, it just seems like, you, you know, we had layoffs, there were a lot of people left, there was not as much, uh, not as many resources. And I found myself in a position where I had to take on the responsibility of multiple jobs because we didn't have enough people or, you know, we couldn't pay enough people to do all of it. And so I ended up working. And from what I remember, there was this, a three week period that, uh, I worked so many hours and I worked so long and so hard. It was like 100 plus hour work weeks. And in that three weeks, never once did I see my family. So my wife and kids, I never saw them. And here's the crazy part. I wasn't out of town. I wasn't like off on a, on a video or a TV shoot, you know, for a week and a half. I wasn't gone, you know, in some event. I was here and I was home. The problem is I was either I spent the you know the night at the office several times or I'd come in super super late and wake up super early in the morning and take off or I even spent the night on a couch at a, at a video editing you know bay somewhere when we're putting together some film so the, the short of it was like those 3 weeks I didn't even see my family and I worked so long and so hard that I kind of consider that like my dark days it, it was just way too much like that was the absolute limit and I know it was terrible. I know like that, that Saturday after those three weeks when I first actually was home, I just got a note uh, from my wife and she said, peace out, you take care of the kids, I'm gone. And so, cause she hadn't had a break either. So she took off and I, you know, I saw her later that night. But to me, the, the whole moral of that story is that I never, ever, ever want to get to that place again. I never want to work that hard. Like that is just working myself way too hard. And it's just a formula for burnout. And so I want to definitely like anytime things start to get close to that, I need to like, I need to put in limits. I need to, you know, again, swing back to that balance in the middle and not just be a hero and work my guts out just because that's our industry, right? So never want that to happen again, but I also don't want to, you know, the other extreme, which is you're not working enough and then you don't have a job and there's, and there's nothing to do and you're not making income. So finding the balance is really critical. So I'd encourage you, I don't know what your limits are on either end. 
But if anything, it's just take some time to think about it. What are my personal limits, um, top and bottom? What can I do to help balance things out a, a little? And this is not something we just do once and you're done. I, I'm doing it all the time. Even right now during this, this COVID work from home thing, as you can see, I'm recording here in, in my front room. It's for me finding about like, cause it's, you're so accessible now to everyone. It's which, how many meetings do, should I take? Should I schedule time for myself? You know, early on in this whole thing, when it started out, I was just packed with meetings, you know, day and night, and I was not getting a break and I was going stir crazy. I think I'm getting a little bit better at it now where I'm, you know, finding limits of where I can scale myself and I can work hard and do stuff. And then where I need to do some self care and I need to go, you know, do something different and just get away from the, the monitor and the, and, and all the meetings and all that. So step one, figure out your limits. All right. Now the, another element that you have to keep in mind with this is, you know, one of the biggest issues I see with creative leaders, especially young, um, new creative leaders is that they try to do it all themselves. Like they definitely push for that hero mentality. And I just want to let you know, one thing that's really important is at this point, if you're a creative leader, it's no longer, you're no longer being judged about how many hours you work. Instead, it's the overall value of the project. Meaning you don't have to like, to show that you're a really good manager, a really good leader, you don't have to just pull all-nighters all the time and then just show up with the team and be like, look what I did, right? In fact, that's, the, in my opinion, that's the, a sign of bad leadership, right? You shouldn't be extending yourself too far. Because what that means to me is that you're, you're trying to do it all yourself and you haven't learned how to delegate. You haven't learned how to scale a team and work with your team rather than, uh, you know, just, I guess, essentially micromanaging it all and trying to do it yourself, right? So rule number one, as a, as a creative leader, don't try and do it all yourself. Don't take over all the projects. Your job is to support and guide, but let your team do it. I mean, what I call it is like, a, it's a mature management style. A mature management style says, I have my team and I trust them and I'm going to give them guidelines, but then they need accountability to handle it. A non-mature management style would be, here's the things and they're not doing it. I'm just going to take it back, do it all, rewrite it, redesign it, re-edit the video, find the music myself and then give it back to them. And it's just like the whole thing of like teaching someone to fish. Like that's not teaching them how to fish. That's just grabbing all the fish for yourself, right? And, and maybe in, in our culture of marketing and advertising, it, it is a, a very competitive environment and you're, you're used to like kind of proving that you're the, the best and the most awesome. But a good mature management style <clears throat> is to guide, is to give you know, feedback, give a vision, show them where you need you know, to try different things or not do certain things, and then let them do it. And so part of your job is just to get out of the way and make sure they feel that ownership. Because if, if they're worth their salt, they will step up and they will show their own accountability. Otherwise, you're just enabling them. So <clears throat> something important to keep in mind. You know, some of the phrases that I hear around this kind of stuff is, oh, it's faster. I'll just do it myself, right? Like, it, I want to help my team, but it's just, it, we don't have time. So I'm just going to do it myself. Like that's a, if you hear yourself saying that, it's a bad idea that you're not scaling. You're not scaling yourself right. Um, or, you know, maybe, maybe you're just going to say, you know, it's a, it's a matter of resources or, you know, whatever it may be. The truth is you need to find a way to, to scale your team and you need to teach and guide and give vision. And this is also true, not just with your internal team. This is true with agencies you work with. I see this happening all the time where working with an outside agency and instead of just going through the hassle, they're like, oh, I'll just, I'll just take it in house and just fix it up and then show them what, what it was. And that's just like really bad feedback, right? You should be working with them. If, if they're an agency that you're not wanting to work with anymore, I totally get it. But if this is a long-term partnership and you need scale, then 
you, you know, it's not that I'm saying treat your agency like an internal employee. I'm not saying that at all, but in good partnership, good leadership, you should give good feedback and help guide so that they're getting better at the work so that in the future, you don't have to redo all their work. You don't have to go back and change it all. So anyhow, enough with that. That's all about yourself. You know, think about your limits and then scale yourself by not micromanaging. People don't call it micromanaging. They want it to good quality, right? But just don't do it. Just make sure you're guiding and leading, not doing. All right, so now after yourself, now let's say you need to, let's start talking about your internal creative team. And whether you, know, you have a, a group of designers and writers or you're managing a video team or you're managing you know, whatever production group, these are some of the different things that I've uh, run across over my two and a half decades of, of leadership. So the biggest thing that I usually uh, have to deal with is either the pool model versus the ownership model. And let me explain the difference. The pool model is where you take your whole team, you're like, we just want them to have access to everything. So we'll make just a big pool of all the resources and then as the projects come in, we'll just cherry pick different people for different projects and pull them out of the pool and, and put them on different lists, right? So that way, the idea that most people have is that with the pool model, you can scale better because no one is isolated in a silo, right? So you're all just in this big pool and we can, and we can use everyone as needed. Um, and I've found, to be honest, my personal experience with the pool model is that it's terrible. And here's why. Number one... It's a thankless job to have to chase down and figure out what everyone's doing all the time, right? Especially when you're assigning new projects. Then it's just like, if I need to assign this new project, I have to go through everyone's list to see who's got availability and then start assigning things. And it's just so much more work actually on the whoever the operations or the account manager is to get that all figured out and assigned. So it's just this thankless job of chasing it all down. The next side effect that's bad is that no one in the pool feels accountability. They're just in the pool with all the germs and all the, you know, the kid pee in the pool, it's just there. And they don't feel like they have to worry about any stakeholders. They don't have to worry about partnerships. They don't have to worry about anything. And so the tendency is just to kind of like float back to the bottom and just wait for something to be given to you, right? And so I found that it's really, really bad with the pool approach. It demoralizes the team. They don't feel like they have an opportunity to shine or grow or have ownership of them for themselves. So I would highly discourage you to think that scaling equals the pool, the pool model. Don't do it. Now, the other approach that I've tried and has, have had great success with is more of the, the ownership approach. And that's where you'll go through and see all the different, whether it's clients or products or divisions or things, types of projects that you have, and you, and you split it up so that each person on your team has ownership of a chunk, of a chunk of content or a chunk of clients, whatever it may be that's good for their skill set, right? So one person may be really good at scripting, so they're gonna, I'm gonna put them on writing you know, video projects. Another one's really, really good at short form, we're gonna put them on email and landing page. Someone's really, really good at you know, long form design, we're gonna put them on the content team, right? So what you do is you, you split it up into chunks, you assign people that's their, their kind of priority chunk, and then they have the opportunity to own that thing work with stakeholders, work with clients, work with everyone else on the team and feel like they're tighter and closer aligned with all of that. And that way they feel that ownership, they feel the pride, the sense of, of accountability, and they're gonna make sure that they're gonna do the best job for that chunk, right? Now, to scale then in that model, <clears throat> we still have people flex onto other projects because those small chunks, one may be, you know, you may have a ton of videos at one time and not a lot of emails or vice versa, it doesn't matter. 
But with that model, you can still scale people across. You can say, okay, and I'm going to talk to how you know how, how busy they are in just a minute. But you can still scale across and have people from these different chunks go over and help out when something lights on fire and you really need all hands on deck. Totally fine. And in those situations, it's the same thing as if you're doing the, the pool model, you're still flexing people over. But the benefit is when you're organizing things, a new project comes in and you know it's for this certain thing, you know who the people are. You know who it goes to. And chances are they have good history right, with that thing so they can go through and do the project faster. With the pool model, every single time you bring someone new on a different project, especially if it's a, a big agency or a big company, they're having to relearn stuff or get up to speed on everything. And so it slows down the whole process. It's actually not faster at scale. So accountability model, align people with certain projects, clients, or, or chunks, and then have them flex over as there's, as they have more availability or, and if they have, you know, more projects, then we'll bring the other team around as well. So even though it seems like it's putting everyone in silos, it's not, it's really giving everyone ownership and accountability. And then as a team, you know, we still come together as a team, look at that master list, figure out priorities, and then, and then make sure everyone has a, a balanced workload. <clears throat> So those are the two models. All right, next, really briefly, well, not briefly, for a while, I want to talk about uh, the idea of like one of the biggest issues <clears throat> is knowing if those on your team are over or underloaded. You know, we have so many software tools and spreadsheets, and it's a constant chore of chasing around, like I said earlier, chasing around to see who has availability. And while I am a big proponent of the master list, like I want to see the full list of all the projects, projects we have and who's assigned to each of those projects. <clears throat> but sometimes even with the latest software, it'll just list everyone's name. You know, you can go to your Trello cards, you can go to your work front, you can go to whatever project management software you use and you'll see a person and the list of projects they have, but that doesn't really tell you how busy or overwhelmed or underwhelmed they are. And I'm going to get into that more in just a detail. And the reason why is because on that list, maybe half of the things are already out for review, right? Or maybe half of the things are fast little one hour projects. And then you're trying to compare just by a list of names of projects to someone else's list. And even if you say you're doing a sprint model where you're like, okay, we're gonna do big chunks, medium chunks, small chunks, or somehow give points to these things. Even if you have equal points, it's still hard to know when those things are actually in process or due, or you're waiting on feedback, like all that kind of stuff. And that's just the project list. There's so much more to how overloaded or underloaded someone feels. So what I came up with is what I call the Whelm scale. And the Whelm scale is, uh, it's it's really trying to figure out all of those elements that go into play into making a person feel overwhelmed or underwhelmed. So what you're seeing here now is is just a whelm scale I came up with when I was at agency, and it shows a lot of different. Uh, it's kind of an eye chart, but at least it shows a lot of different elements that are at play in knowing how how balanced you are, because you know timesheets. That's just one element, and even though they're a cursed thing and I hate them, timesheets are just one thing of knowing how much time someone is full except the fact that it's all fake numbers anyhow. But knowing like the number of projects, the number of major deadlines, minor deadlines, how many big presentations, because there's a lot of prep work and getting ready for a presentation, even if you've already done the work on the project. Um, timelines, number of projects, meetings, how, you know, how many big meetings are you in? For example, for me, I may not have a huge list of projects for my team, but I am in meetings all day. I can have six to eight to 10 meetings a day, you know, in half hour or hour chunks, and I'm really, really busy because I don't have the time to be working, you know, on, on writing or designing or anything else. 
Um, you know, I also have in here late nights, you know, how often are people staying late or they're going home early or they're taking, you know, the ability to take lunch. And even though that sounds like very extreme in that I don't want to perpetuate people feeling like they have to stay late or they have to skip a lunch or any of those things, but it's all of this stuff combined is really what gives you a good measure of how whelmed you are. And then here's the next best part about the whelm scale is unlike our project management lists that just tell us how busy a person is, the whelm scale is self-reporting. And the reason why this is important is if let's say I just went out to everyone on my team and said, hey, are you guys overwhelmed or not? Inevitably, I guarantee the person who says they're overwhelmed or feels overwhelmed probably has the least amount of projects. And the person who's not overwhelmed but asks for more and is eager, they're probably the rock star that has a ton of projects and will continue to take more projects. So that's not a really good indication of who's got more, who's got less. But when I created the whelm scale and I say, look at this, in the middle five, here is the average amount. Here's what a whelmed person should have, the number of projects, the number of hours, the number of meetings, the number of things, they can see how they can compare against all the other people on their team. And they can say, ah, okay, even though I feel overwhelmed at two projects, I'm looking at everyone else and they're not overwhelmed until it's like 10 or 20 projects, right? So this helps balance out the load so you get an equal amount of whelmness from each of the people, each person on your team. So the way this works with the Whelm scale is when we have our weekly meeting and we can go through all the lists of projects, as we're assigning new projects out, first we want to check and say, all right, everyone self-report, what's your Whelm scale? Once you see your existing amount of work, are you at a five? Are you at a two or a three? Are you at a seven and eight? We'll get a sense of how whelmed they are and they report back and, and own the accountability on that based on the scale of everyone else. And then when we know that, then we know we can add more projects to different people or take projects away or flex resources one way or another. Super, super helpful. And for me, it's been a great system of kind of taking all of those things into account when you're really balancing your team. So if you remember anything from this episode, it's the whelm scale. Are you underwhelmed, overwhelmed, and how do you make sure your team is perfectly whelmed? What I would encourage you to do is you could take a snapshot of, of mine, but go back and really think about your business your team and what kind of things, um, what kind of projects, how much time, how much energy, types of presentations, all those things, you know, make a scale for your own team that you think is important and then balance it all out and then present it to your team and have them self-select where they stand. So that is the Whelm scale. All right. So we've talked about how do you scale yourself? How do you scale your team? How do you balance everything? Make sure it's all good. The last thing I want to talk about is how do you use technology to help scale? So it's not just, I'm not just talking about um, project management systems. We'll do a whole separate episode on that because there's a lot involved with, uh, with, with that software. <clears throat> but more, I just want to talk a little bit about as a creative team, we use tech in a different way, meaning when we're doing projects and we're designing and we're writing, you know, there's a lot of assets from fonts and art and all the latest stuff. And there's so many assets out there. You know, there's this, this, uh, idea of what we call content velocity, where there's 10 times more the number of, uh, of pieces of content that we have to create today than we did maybe five, seven years ago because of all the channels and all the social and everything is just like this proliferation of, of more and more channels and stuff. And so as a creative team, we have, to, we have to create a ton more stuff. And so, you know, certainly early on in my career, using technology in the right way to scale your team was all right, we're all, how much time do we spend wasting time running around trying to find the right font or running around trying to find the latest version, make sure we got version control issues 
Or how are we saving things to the server so that we are using the right naming conventions so it's not screwed up when we're wasting time searching and searching and searching for old files. So I would say the next step after you've kind of figured out you and your, and your team is to make sure that your technology is in place. Make sure that you can handle content velocity. And there's a lot of ways to do that. You know, today we have digital asset management software. We have, you know, dams. And you could set something up where all your assets are there and it controls version issues. It, you know, you don't have to search for art. You don't have to search for anything. It's, it's all there and easy to find. Um, there's also, you know, ways that Adobe, and I'm not saying this because I work for Adobe. This, this happened before I started working there, where they've organized everything in the cloud where all the fonts are synced. You know, you can sync up with your team through all of your libraries. You can make sure everyone's on the same page. You can really share all of that stuff. And it, and it really helps with what I call computational design. I don't call it. Everyone calls it computational design. And computational design is moving away from just doing one-off things where I go out and I do a, you know, a, a print ad. And instead, if I have to create all of these banner ads in a million different sizes and websites and landing pages and emails, instead, you have all of these tools, you know, whether you're using Adobe software or you're using you know, whatever asset management you have, but it's finding ways to build a machine so that you have all the parts and pieces there for you and then you don't have to waste time chasing stuff around. And also the way you build it, like think through the way your team builds stuff. Maybe, maybe you just need to build you know, core art pieces or content chunks like you know, headlines and chunks of body copy or little video snippets and create all of these chunks and those chunks are created by the team. And then at scale, the rest of the marketers or whoever can use all those chunks and put them in different way, you know, different, uh, mash them up in different ways for different personalized experiences. Or if you're using software that actually sends out, you know, thousands of emails that are personalized, you have just built the core chunks and then everyone else on the team can use them however they need to. So finding ways for content velocity and compu computational design and how it fits in with your world is really, really important so that you can scale your team without just burning and spinning time, um, just building all the wrong things or redoing stuff all the time. Thank you for listening. That was some tips and tricks on how to scale you and your team internally. Uh, so there, we're going to do one more session on scaling. I know the first was external scaling, and then this time I talked about internal scale. And next episode, I'm actually going to bring in a B2B expert, AJ Herrera, who's the VP of Brand and Advertising at VMware. And he's got some great advice, advice on how he scales his team. So... The next session, episode seven, we're going to bring someone in, AJ Herrera, and I just want you to listen in on our conversation, and we're going to talk about how you scale and, and then how you manage all this stuff, because me just talking all the time is just philosophy, right? It's just theory, but I want to talk more practical magic of how you put it into action. And in fact, that's, I think, the new program that we're going to be going for in the future here with uh, Real Creative Leadership, where... You know, there are models for podcasts and whatnot out there where it's like we're just interviewing people all the time or there's just I'm going to tell you information. I want to blend the both of those. So we'll pick a topic like scaling your team. We're going to talk about it, um, in kind of the basic steps, tips and tricks. And then the next episode will be me bringing in an outside creative director or outside creative leader or someone, you know, at a different company. And then we'll talk about it so we have practical application. So if you're interested and you're a creative leader and you have a specific topic, please reach out to me. And let's figure, figure out an episode where we can talk about that thing. And I'd love to have you on the show. All right. So, and now last of all, I do want to give a, a, a big shout out to Stoke. Stoke uh, is the team that has been helping me create this whole Real Creative Leadership podcast and webinar. So they help with both the, the live webinar production and then also the production of, of the podcast. 
and I don't know how it is with you, but for me, like on my own, if I had to do this on my own, I would be slow and, and slow going and you'd probably see one episode every quarter. So they have really, really helped uh, speed this up, you know, actually scale myself in order to make this awesome series. So a huge, huge shout out to them. They are awesome. Not just great people, but great to work with and very talented. So I want to give them a shout out. So it's whether you need help scaling your team with writing, short or journalistic long form or good design or web development or video, whatever it is, please reach out to reach out to Stoke. So they're an agency, full service content creation and full service agency in Silicon Slopes. And they're just great people to work with. So please reach out and at least just have an intro intro chat and see what they have to offer because I'm just super grateful for them helping me out all the time. All right, next, again, how do you connect? If you want more information, you can visit realcreativeleadership.com and, and watch the latest episodes. Uh, you can also visit my personal website, adamwmorgan.com, and you can sign up for my newsletter, and I'll give you updates on books and articles that I write or when new episodes come out. Uh, that's just kind of a good reminder. I don't really spam much of anything. In fact, like I said before, if, if it was left up to me, uh, I usually, you know, I'm pretty tardy on sending out emails, so it's not like you're going to get spammed a lot. Um, and then also, here's the web URL for the Stoke Group if you want to reach out to them. But th those are ways that you can get in touch with us, and we'd love to hear from you. So that's it for episode six. Thank you so much for listening, and uh, I hope you have a great week, and we'll see you next time.